0: Now the words I speak and the words we hear be your words of life, our God. Amen. So the fourth Sunday of Advent, which means Christmas is perilously close. I hope you're all organised. This Sunday the theme is love, which is there above the cliff, just to remind us all. It's also traditionally the Sunday where we focus on Mary, hence the A little bit of the story this morning and our reading from Luke. Luke is the one gospel writer that actually pays a little bit of attention to Mary. So in this year B of our three year cycle, the year we're supposed to be reading from Mark's gospel, we had this morning a reading from Luke's gospel. So who is Mary? What place does she play in our life of faith. When we think of Mary, who is it that we think of? And how important is she for us? For the last 2,000 years, it would be fair to say that Mary has been a little bit of an enigma, a problem almost. We can see that in the way that the New Testament writers dealt with her. Mark's gospel for example barely mentions her apart from her big moment is when she and Jesus brothers and sisters come and try to take him home because they say that he's clearly crazy and he needs some care maybe they thought he was crazy, maybe they just saw where all this was going so that's Mary's big moment in Mark's gospel not a particularly good big moment and Matthew's not a lot better except she is there at the empty tomb and while she plays a reasonably important role in John's gospel, she's never actually named. He doesn't talk about Mary. He talks about the mother of the Lord. So she's kind of important, but not really important enough to use the name. Or maybe her name was so important you shouldn't mention it. Luke is the one gospel writer who actually pays some attention to Mary. And in fact, he gives her quite an important role. Now over the centuries, Mary has been portrayed as, the, as a kind of model of womanhood. So if you want to know what a good woman is, look at Mary. Or a good mother, a model of motherhood. Well Luke went way beyond that. Luke said, if you want to know what a good follower of Christ looks like, then Mary's the one you should look to. She is our model. Men and women, Mary is the one. Not Peter, not John, not the other apostles who you would think Luke thought would be the ones to look at, but Mary. So for Luke, Mary was very important. The other gospel writers, not so much. And Paul doesn't mention her. Not even on the radar. So, within the New Testament we have, so unimportant we're not going to mention her, all the way through to, she is our model. She's the one we should be looking to. And church history has shown exactly that same kind of continuum of, ignore her, too really important. In fact, at one point during the Middle Ages, she was deemed to be so important that there was a group of theologians who were pushing for a quaternity. They wanted to put Mary into the Godhead. So Father, Son, Holy Spirit and Mary. So they haven't quite gone that far, but there would be a number of Christians today for whom Mary is just under God. For the vast majority of Christians, Mary is important. She is the Mother of God. So for Catholics, Roman Catholics, Orthodox Christians, some Anglicans, and some Lutherans, she is super important. And then there's lots of Christians who don't think she's very important at all. So, what about the ones who think she is important? Well, even how we approach her is different. I've got a couple of friends who've just, well, one of them's still in Los Angeles having. Christmas there but uh, I had a couple of friends who had just finished being in Israel at St. George's College, the Anglican College there that runs courses and they took a group across from Tairavati, uh to do one of these courses and each day Chris was putting up on his Facebook page pictures of where they'd been that day and on one day he said this is Mary's tomb and I looked at that and went yeah that would be the Orthodox Mary's tomb. Because if you're Roman Catholic, Mary didn't die. She was just bodily assumed into heaven at the end of her life. So there is no tomb. There's a church built on the site where she was assumed into heaven. So there's a tomb. That's clearly Orthodox. I've been there as well. So they have a site where she died and where she was buried. So even amongst Catholics and Orthodox, there's a difference to how important she was and whether she ended up how she ended up in heaven. For us, in New Zealand anyway, because of our Protestant heritage, Mother of God can make us feel a little bit uncomfortable. But the Mother of God stuff is really important. Mary is the one who leads us into the mystery of the incarnation. To put that another way, Mary is the one who leads us into the mystery of what Christmas is about. Sometimes we get so tied up with the little baby thinking how cute it is that we forget the magnitude of what Christmas is about. That it is God most holy coming amongst us as one of us in the person of Jesus. And Mary is the vehicle for that. And so Catholics and some Anglicans and some Lutherans pray the Angelus up to three times a day as a means of reflecting on the importance of the Incarnation. The Angelus is hearing the beginning of the reading, that Gospel reading we heard, and then a prayer reflecting on what that means for us today. What does the Incarnation mean for us? For us as Franciscans, she's super important. She is our patron saint, and so there's tons of prayers to Mary including one that I pray quite often, which says, May our Blessed Lady pray for us, may St. Francis pray for us, may St. Clare pray for us, may all the Franciscan saints pray for us, and so on. We start with Mary, because she is number one. Within the Orthodox tradition, Mary was called the Theotokos, is called the Theotokos, which literally means bringing forth of God. And is more commonly translated as God bearer. And the importance of that theology was that you and I are also Theotokos. We are also God bearers. And so the invitation is: How do we bring forth God in our world today? How are we God bearers? So that's one end of the spectrum. Mary is important. At the other end of the spectrum is the Protestant Church. And we as Anglicans have one foot in the Protestant Church. And the Protestant Church reacted to all the excesses of Marian devotion and the kind of almost treating Mary like God and said, Mary is super unimportant and we should really just ignore her, except at Christmas when it's really hard to ignore her. But even then, we should just give her a pretty minor role. And so, one of the commentaries that I read, which is written by an American Lutheran, pointed out that in America, (laughs) there are lots of churches named after Andrew and Mark and Stephen and virtually none after Mary. And his comment is, but actually Mary plays a more significant role in the Christian story than those three. But it's our aversion, our worry about Mary that makes us do that. Well, we are Anglicans, which means we cover that whole gambit. And so, down in Nelson, I have a colleague who spends a lot of time telling us how unimportant Mary is and how we shouldn't spend any time thinking about her whatsoever. He takes every opportunity he can to say that. I think he talks about Mary than most other people, telling us how unimportant she is. And then we have the other extreme, where when I went to the Solomons for the first time, I was at uh, the place where the novices are trained for the Melanesian sisters. I was there at midday, and the bells rang. And I was there with Dorothy Brooker, who had been a missionary in the Solomons, and she and the head sister up there began to pray the Angelus. And at the end of it, the head sister said to me, Father, you didn't join us in the Angelus. And I said... I have never prayed the Angelus in my life. I wouldn't have a clue what the words were. And she was shocked that there were Anglicans who did not know the words of the Angelus. Because in Melanesia, they are high church, and at 12 o'clock, the bells will ring and people will stop and say the Angelus. It's just part of who they are. And so we have that whole spectrum from super unimportant to very, very important, and most of us are probably somewhere in the middle, not quite sure really what to make of Mary. So what do we make of Mary? What should we do with her? Well, maybe a place to start is with the real Mary. If you Google Mary, you will find mostly pictures of a well-to-do, comfortable young woman Dressed in the finest clothes of her time. It's a common image of Mary. It's also a really unhelpful one. Because Mary wasn't well to do and wasn't comfortable. Mary was a poor peasant girl who lived in a cave with her family in a small, small village called Nazareth. They estimate there were about 200 people there. 200 total all living in caves, on the side of a hill in Galilee, a part of the world where everyone looked down on it. Just kind of like Meribah, really. Over there, let's ignore it. Hope it goes away. That's the kind of person Mary was. And we often talk about whether she said yes or no, but actually Mary was someone who had very little choice in her life. Her role in life was to be a good wife. And so in her early years, she would have spent doing what her mother taught her so that she could learn how to be a good wife. There wasn't a lot of time for playing. She spent most of her time in household chores. Learning so that when her father arranged her marriage, as he had clearly done to the carpenter Joseph, she would be able to uphold the family name, maintain the family honour, and perform her duties well as a wife and a mother. This is not a young woman who knew choice in her life, she simply knew obedience. And it's to this really unlikely young woman that the archangel Gabriel comes, according to Luke. And we often talk about, and even the lighting of the candle talks about how she said yes. But if we really read what Luke says, there's not a lot of choice in there. I mean, Gabriel doesn't say, well, God's been thinking... And God was just wondering whether you'd be willing, you know, God thinks this is a good idea, but what do you think? Would you be willing to do this? We well, no, it's a little risky, but, you know, yes or no, what do you think? Nope, Gabriel just says, this is what is going to happen. And Mary's response isn't, well, I'm not sure. It's, what? How can that be? I'm still a virgin. You're crazy, you crazy angel. And Gabriel says, well, God's at work, so don't worry about that. It's just going to happen. And her response at the end is the response she would have given to every command. Yes, I will do it. Because in the end, she had no choice. So why do we remember the story? Well, I think... What comes next is what makes this story so remarkable. And what comes next is she goes to visit her relative, Elizabeth, who is now pregnant in her old age, and we have the Magnificat, the Song of Mary. I don't know how many of you noticed, but that song of praise and protest that we sang for the gradual is based on the Magnificat. That's why we sang it. It's a version of the Magnificat. A song of praise and protest. And so we have this young peasant girl who is simply being obedient and somewhere in the story she has turned from an obedient peasant girl to someone who can proclaim something like the Magnificat. Now, I I wonder whether Luke actually knew Mary in her old age. I I haven't read this in any of the commentaries, so this is just pure me making stuff up. But I wonder if the reason why Luke gives Mary a much bigger role in the Gospels than the other Gospel writers is because he knew her. And I wonder whether the Magnificat is something that she would have said at the end of her life as she reflected on what had happened. Now, up until very recently, the whole concept of change and development was unknown. The kind of person you were at the end of your life was the kind of person you were supposed to have been at the beginning of your life. The things you said at the end of your life were exactly the same things you would have said at the beginning of your life. That was the essence of who you were. And so for Luke to transpose something from the end of Mary's life to right at the beginning wouldn't have been a stretch for him because, well, if she said it at the end of her life, she would have been able to say it when she was first pregnant. That's just how people thought. And so I wonder whether Luke transposed this into an early part of her life because he wanted to get it in there. It is the most amazing little thing. Those of us who grew up Anglicans long, long ago, back in the days when there was even song, and you'd go to even song and you would sing the Magnificat, probably missed what a song of protest it was. I can remember the first time I realised it was a song of protest, having sung it for years. So, how do we understand this Magnificat? Well, one of the commentators said. To understand it, you first of, have to, first of all have to understand why people think there are poor people in the world. Nowadays, we think there are poor people in the world because it's their fault. They're either lazy or uneducated or haven't got enough get up and go or all sorts of reasons. But essentially, it's their fault. They just knew more, did more, had more get up and go, they wouldn't be so poor. There's lots of people who think that. Up until very recently, it was thought there were, and I'm sure there are still people who think this, it was thought there were poor people in the world because it was God's will. All Things Bright and Beautiful is a lovely little song, isn't it? Luckily, we don't sing the last verse anymore. Because the last verse is all about the rich man in his castle, the poor man in his field, that's the way God wills it. That's the way it should be. And if you questioned the fact there were so many poor people, and if you questioned the way the rich lived their lives, well, lots of those people were deemed heretics. Because they were questioning the the way that God had made the world. And that was certainly true 200 years ago, 100 years ago, and it was certainly true in Mary's time. And everyone thought that. Rich people thought it. They ruled by divine right. Poor people thought it. We are poor because God made us that way. So we should just get on and be poor and happy about it. Well, when you read the Magnificat in light of that, it becomes a really interesting little song. So remember, poor people are poor because God made it that way. Except Mary says about God, You have cast down the mighty from their thrones and lifted up the lowly. You have filled the hungry with good things, and the rich you have sent away empty. You have come to the help of your people, for you have remembered your promise of mercy. That is a clear statement that that is not God's will. Mary changed from being a poor peasant girl who knew no choice in her life to someone who could declare that God's will was for the world to be thought of differently. And this pregnancy was the moment that began. She understood that something huge was going on and that she was playing a role in it. She was a sign of what God was doing. That the cry of the poor had been heard and that God's reign of justice and peace had begun. As we heard last week, the good news is brought to the poor. Released to the captives is proclaimed. The blind recover their sight. The oppressed go free. And the year of the Lord's favour is proclaimed. So who is Mary for us? What role does she play in our life of faith? How is she inviting us to enter into this Christmas.